Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Seems like only a few days ago that we were together. It does. We just did a live show on Sunday and now here we are in my loft. It's very hot today and I don't wish to get our listeners hot under the collar, but both Ed and I are wearing shorts. You were wearing them last week, weren't you? Yeah. You you were a trendsetter. <laughs> that, that's exactly how I think of myself. I, follow, yeah. I followed your trend. Yeah. So, so in the days since we last saw each other, how have things been? What have you done? Well, I did another turn actually with David Willits, who we had on the podcast um, a few episodes ago, talking about what the tax system should be like after Brexit. How should we change the tax system after Brexit? And really what I was saying was that I felt very strongly that for lots of people who voted for Brexit, they voted for big change in terms of not just the obvious issues that people, lots of people talk about, but in terms of the way the system felt rigged in favour of people at the top. And if you're going to change the tax system, it should be to have inject much greater fairness into the system. So Margaret Hodge has a committee on responsible taxation. So I, David Willits and I went before that and we agreed about quite a lot, actually, not everything. And um, did you wear shorts to that? I, I, I was tempted, but uh, I went for the suit and tie. Actually. Is that frowned upon in the uh, in sort of um, Portcullis House and the various Houses of Parliament? You- well, I'm sort of, I've edged towards the jeans and dark jeans and jacket, if I'm not sort of doing a formal meeting or being in the House of Commons chamber for voting, I've even sort of done that. It's providing you don't go into the chamber, it's sort of all right. Is that sort of the classic Clarkson look? Is that is that what we're talking about God, here? is that the Clarkson look? I think jeans and a jacket, maybe. I Larry don't. Hagman. Uh, <laughs> I don't have the cowboy hat. So so because I don't I don't love wearing suits. I mm. really don't love wearing suits. Mm. I bet you don't like wearing suits either. I, I do actually like wearing suits, but I rarely have occasion to. Mm. I think that's the thing, isn't it? You You'd be very welcome to wear a suit for this. Of yours? Can you well, no, me? I mean, for the... For the We'd probably have to have it let out a bit. Although I've started this week, I've decided I'm doing that 5-2 diet. Are you? You know the one yeah. where for two days a week you can only eat 600 calories yeah. and then every other day you eat as much as you physically it, can. Are you doing it? Yes. Is it working? It's, it's going okay, yeah. I'm on a starving day today, but I'm really going to oh, binge no. tomorrow. God, I'm sorry. <laughs> you, see, you seem pretty good-humoured about it. Yeah, let's see see where I'm at by the end of the podcast. No, that's yeah. true. So what are we talking about on this week's podcast? So we're talking about ownership, so how companies' services are owned. And obviously, 
you know, you've got private ownership, you know, private profit-making companies, but you've got other forms of ownership. We're talking about those, public ownership, municipal ownership, but particularly what we want to focus on is cooperative ownership. And we're focusing on a part of Spain, the town of Mondragon, where, believe it or not, 73,000 employees, so a rather large number, are in a cooperative firms. And it's got this extraordinary history. And we're talking to somebody from there. And then we're going to go a bit wider in terms of what are the implications of that for us here? Why might we be interested in other forms of ownership? You know, we've covered a bit public ownership rail um, in, in past episodes. But I think thinking about if you want to change the country, if you want to change the way things are run what does it mean for these questions of ownership i think you know there's obviously a rich tradition on this uh, i think it's a it's kind of really important subject manchester birthplace of the cooperative exactly movement. exactly yeah. Exactly. We used to have the headquarters on Balloon Street. I don't know if they uh, still do. And as well as that, we have some uh, some other podcasters coming in to present ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. They're very funny. Their live shows are a huge success, as is their podcast. We have Helen and Ellie from the Scummy Mummies podcast. Great. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful this week, I mean, I, I am finding it difficult to come up with the reason to be cheerful this week just because I'm hungry. So I'm yeah. starting to, you know, just get into that kind of hangry frame of mind. But uh, here's one. I'm going to go and see Flight of the Concours this week. Do you remember I got tickets yes. for Sarah for Christmas? Um, something and happened. Then, and then it got cancelled because uh, or postponed because Brett from the band Brit, um, he, he broke his hand and couldn't play guitar. And it's been rescheduled. So, so. what is it, Flight of the Concours? You've never seen Flight of the Concours? Oh, Ed, it's fantastic. It's uh, an HBO sitcom from about 10 years ago it's two kiwi guys living in new york sort of in abject poverty because they're trying to make it as musicians and that's sort of very funny and very deadpan but the, it's full of songs and the songs are the best musical parodies and best musical comedy wow. you, you can see they're so so good so should i go and watch it as absolutely well? you should yeah yeah. What's, uh, what's your reasons to be cheerful? Well, mine actually is about one of our episodes, sort of. Uh, the What is now the famous episode on sortition, uh, episode 20, you know, the idea of citizens, juries and so on. We've had this email this week from Sarah Allen from the organisation involved. She was on the podcast that they got commissioned by the Health and Social Care, Housing Communities and Local Government Select Committees, that's two select committees, to run their own citizens' assembly on social care. Because I think it's one of the issues we raised as a, as a as an ideal, and they've released the findings. It, it recommended taxing the over forties to pay for social care. So they got together forty seven citizens um, to to have in depth discussions about these issues, and they came up with a preference for earmarked taxation and support for a separate compulsory social insurance payment for those over uh, forty. Um, they wanted social care to be free at the point of delivery, like the NHS. And they thought that there should be an extension of national insurance to be paid by people who work beyond state pension age. So at the moment, national insurance is only charged to working people below state pension age. So so they've obviously come up with some ideas about how to sort out the social care mess that there is in this country. I think, and we'll talk about social care on a future episode, but I think what's really encouraging is you've got select committees of the House of Commons for the first time actually engaging in this. I think it deserves perhaps more attention than it's got, the fact that this has happened. But I definitely think it's a reason to be cheerful. And it's all down to us. Well, I'm not sure we can claim no, complete credit. No, no, I think credit. we can. I think, think we can claim complete okay. credit for this. Okay, fair enough. 
Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. I'm delighted that we're now joined by Anda Echeverria, uh, who is the Director of Cooperative Dissemination uh, in Mondragon. And he's going to tell us about the Mondragon experience. Anda, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You're welcome. First of all, tell us a little bit about how Mondragon is different from most other towns in Spain or around the world in terms of the ownership and the cooperative ownership? Yes, the, the town of Mondragon has more or less half of the workers in, in this town are cooperative workers, half of the workers. And this this is because many cooperatives of the Mondragon group are located in this town or near this town. And what is Mondragon, the group, we are a group of 102 cooperatives. Cooperatives have subsidiaries around the world, 140 subsidiaries. Where we are working in the cooperatives are in the subsidiaries, more, more or less 80,000 workers. And these cooperatives are autonomous cooperatives. That means that members are owners of the cooperative. Owner of the cooperative is not the government, Owner of the cooperative is not Mondragon, because cooperatives are autonomous. Owner of the cooperative is not a third part, but members of each cooperative are the owners. And they are working there. If you are a member of a cooperative in the Mondragon group, you are working in that cooperative. Yes, we are worker-owned. And how, how did it come about? What's the history? So the, the beginning for our experience was 1941, when, when a priest called Jose Maria de Mendiarrieta came to the town of Mondragon. It was after the civil war, a very tough situation, and he started to meet young people to organize different kinds of activities, debate, culture, sport, young people whose parents were fighting in different sides. But these young people are together with the priest at Mediarieta organizing this, this, this kind of activities. This was since 1941. In 1943, the priest is going to set up a, a school that now is Mondragon University. And after years and years of education, training, and organization of different kind of activities, in 1956, they are going to set up the first industrial cooperative of our experience. And how did it go from these beginnings to 80,000 workers, Anda? The idea was to improve the society. And they understood that the best way was to create cooperatives. So if they are going to create more cooperatives, it's better than less cooperatives. So they started to do cooperatives in different fields of, uh, of the economy. Schools, cooperative schools, housing uh, cooperatives, industrial, agricultural, a cooperative bank, cooperative university, universities today, uh, technological research centers, cooperative, cooperative consultancies, all kind of cooperatives. And what difference has uh, this made to the people of Mondragon, this cooperative experience? How is would it be different from another town that you might visit either in uh, Britain or in Spain or elsewhere? If you take into account how are our cooperatives, so members are workers, 
one worker, one member, one vote, and how we share profits in a way that is not bigger than six times. I mean, the lowest payment is one, so the highest payment is maximum six. If we take into account this, and if we take into account that what we want to do is to create employment, to create jobs, because this is the way to do a better society, in the region of the town of Mondragon, where most cooperatives are located, in this region, usually we have the lowest ratio of unemployment of the whole of Spain. Wow. If we are talking about regions in Spain. If we are talking about regions in, in Spain, this region usually has the highest ratio of investment in research and development of the whole of Spain because we want to continue existing. And this region, if we take all the regions in Spain, usually has the lowest economical inequality in Spain. And can you t talk to us about productivity? Well, productivity is, is very interesting because there is no a definite, definitive study that shows that cooperatives are better or are not better than other companies. What we can say, and this is something empirical, that many of our cooperatives are in their markets in the top five or in the top three. So we have to be very, very efficient if we want to implement our principles and our values. If we want to continue existing, we must be very efficient. And the reality shows that most of our cooperatives are very efficient and they are in the in their markets, in the top five or in the top three. And if you think about decision-making in a company, what in a cooperative company in Mondragon, and uh, how would that be different from a normal private enterprise? Is it much more democratic decision-making? How does that work? In our case, we take the most important decisions once per year in the General Assembly. And in the General Assembly, one member, one vote. To take the decision... Sometimes we need more time than it would be in another kind of company. But if we need time, that means that once the decision is taken, it's much easier to implement this decision if we compare in a company that the decision is taken from the top and then you have obstacles to implement the, this decision. And this is a general assembly of each company, is it, or of the whole of Mondragon? We are 102 cooperatives. Cooperatives are autonomous, and each cooperative has its uh, general assembly. And then we are a group. We Each cooperative is part of the group, so we have a general assembly of Mondragon Group, and the name of this General Assembly is the Congress. How did the companies in Mondragon fare during the economic crisis, which afflicted so many other countries, you know, about 10 years ago? Well, the, the crisis has been a very big crisis. And we have faced the crisis with uh, using different ways. One way was or has been that we had money, we had funds, to face the crisis because we were saving money in good periods. Another way is in each of our cooperatives, well, the, the traditional recipe to work more hours and to have a, a lower salary. 
this is something that we take or we, we adopt these decisions in a non-traumatic way. So people were willing to make sacrifices for the company, you mean? Yes, because it's your future. It's your future. And if someone is going to save you, it's you. It's not going to be, I don't know, a third part. No, you are responsible of your, of your company, of your cooperative, and so you have to take decisions thinking that is your company. One of the big commitment or great commitment in, in our group is that if I'm a member in a cooperative and I have no work, I have the right to work in another cooperative. If there is no work in the group, I have the right to be trained. And if still there is no work in the group for me, I have the right to get an unemployment salary for two years. From the cooperative association? From Mondrian oh. Group. In our history, no one worker has extinguished this two years period of unemployment salary. Amazing. Mondragon is an extraordinary experience, Ander, but if you like, you're an island in a sort of sea of cap capitalism. Yes. How, how much pressure does the rest of the sort of capitalist system put on you? I mean, I can imagine other companies trying to undercut you with lower wages, uh, less benefits for their workers you know, less environmental standards. How much, how much of, a, of a constraint, a pressure, an obstacle is that for you? That's a good question. I don't know how to, what to say. I'm working here since 20 years ago and living in this environment. And what can, can I say is that if you are working with us, you have reasons to work with us in the way of your heart and in the side of your heart and in the side of your pocket. In the side of your heart, if you understand that work is the way to develop yourself, I'm working and I'm developing my skills, my competences, and I become an integral person. So a cooperative is a better environment to reach this um, integrity as a person. This is important. What is also important? If I'm working in a cooperative, I'm working for me, I'm working for my colleagues, and I'm working for this region. I'm not working for a person to be in the list of Forbes number five, yes? I'm working for me, for my colleagues, and for the region. And this is a special sensation. So this is in the side of our heart, and in the side of the pocket. If you are working in a cooperative, your salary, if you are not a boss, your salary is going to be the same or better than outside. And if you are working in a cooperative, well, laid off doesn't exist. You are not going to be fired. Employment stability is very important. And if we remember Maslow, the pyramid of Maslow, stability, security is fundamental for all of us. And if we're thinking about the United Kingdom and what we should learn from the work you've done, uh, and we wanted to create our own Mondragon, what steps would we need to take, do you think? What's your advice to us? I'm not an expert in, in the United Kingdom, but I would say my impression is that also here, cooperativism is not very known. It's not very known. We have to make known cooperativism around the world because usually... Cooperatives are seen as subsidized 
companies producing not very important services or products depending uh, on the government, we must um, present cooperatives are efficient companies and so cooperatives are an option. I think that is the best option, but people have to know that there is a, another option and it's to create cooperatives. And a thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. You're welcome. We're joined by Joe Guinan, who is Senior Fellow at the Democracy Collaborative and Executive Director of their Next System Project. Uh, Joe, thanks for coming. Thank you very much for having me. Tell us about the work you do related to alternative models of ownership, because that's our subject for today's podcast. Absolutely. Um, I think most people don't really understand the extent to which there's been a a quiet ownership revolution taking place uh, sort of beneath the surface of media attention in the United States. Uh, for example, one in every three Americans is a member of a co-op of one form or another, um, whether that's credit or consumer co-ops or even a small handful of worker co-ops. Um, there's exploding uh, innovation at the community level in terms of new community ownership forms, community development corporations, uh, community land trusts, which I understand you've talked about on past shows, um, also, a surprising um, prevalence of municipal ownership, local public ownership, which I think, again, people may not be fully aware of. What of. kind of things would that be, municipal ownership? That could be everything from um, providing uh, the usual services that haven't been outsourced in the United States to the extent to um, which they have here, um, sort of bins and water and energy, uh, through to profit-making businesses. Uh, you're finding more and more cities are actually doing things like when they put in new uh, transport infrastructure and the land values go up, instead of seeing private developers capturing all that, um, they're capturing it themselves by owning the hotels that are built and so forth and then leasing them out. E even public Wi-Fi, I think I'm right in saying. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're seeing parts of the states where uh, some of the big uh, Wi-Fi companies um, haven't been uh, present and haven't been delivering good services, um, providing new uh, publicly owned broadband. In fact, some of the fastest broadband in the United States is publicly owned in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And just for our listeners... We've heard about Mondragon. It all sounds good. Why might the people listening to this podcast think, or what, why would you say that these models of ownership need to be explored? Well, I think uh, you were tackling some of these questions when you were talking about pre-distribution. Um, it's an ugly word for a very important concept of, of the importance of, of how the economy is structured and its basic relationships and the outcomes that that produces. And what we've seen through the sort of history of social democracy has been an attempt to correct um, for malign outcomes. Through taxes and benefits and so on. Absolutely, the welfare state. Whereas I think what these new models of ownership and the democratic economy are really about are getting those institutions and relationships right from the get-go so that they naturally in and of themselves as a matter of course produce the kind of outcomes that we're looking for in terms of broader ownership, better income distribution, sustainability, and economics of place, and so forth. And I think more and more people are gravitating in this direction. It's happening here in the United Kingdom in a very exciting way as well. Can you talk through some of the ways it's happening over here? My colleague, Matthew Brown, um, who recently became leader of uh, Preston Who we've Council. had on the podcast. Absolutely. It's a very good episode. Um, he has really taken some of the ideas of Mondragon, but also some of the work that we've done in Cleveland, Ohio, with the Evergreen Co-ops, and begun to build what I think is starting to amount to 
a 21st century model of municipal socialism um, in which um, there are different ownership models and forms, co-ops attached to local anchors and procurement. You probably went into all that with your with your show. So this is the local public sector bodies like the NHS and the police and so on commissioning services but but from and supplies from cooperatives exactly and so creating if you like a, a sort of rooted economy of place that's somewhat protected um, from global capital flows and and predatory multinational corporations and the like and we've we've seen this recently in in cleveland where our tiny little co-ops that that got started there have really started to expand and take on bigger and bigger contracts and in what kinds of areas uh, so there's three co-ops there's um there's a large urban green House providing leafy greens and herbs to the um, the local hospitals and, and universities. There's a laundry, as you can imagine. Hospitals produce very large uh, uh, dirty linen uh, output, and that needs to be laundered by someone or other. And then we've got a solar and weatherization company um, and more companies uh, down the road. But the laundry has just stepped in and taken on the entire um, laundry uh, service contract for the Cleveland Clinic, one of the, the bigger and, and most well-known hospitals in the United States. Uh, doubled their uh, number of workers and put them on a fast track to to ownership. Um, everyone got a pay increase as part of that contract as well. And so I think things are going well there. In Preston, um, you're seeing some even more interesting additions. Uh, the the bank, uh, the cooperative bank that is in, in the process. That's not the co-op bank. That's a new cooperative bank in Preston. Small C cooperative. Yeah, of course, yeah small exactly. C cooperative. Yeah. So the Preston Bank um, is is in the process of, of being created. Uh, if you look at the dominance in the UK of the handful of very, very large banks and what they're actually up to, only a very, very tiny amount of their lending actually goes to small and medium businesses in this country. And, uh, and most of it actually goes into speculative trading and derivatives and all the kinds of things that brought about the last financial crash. Uh, and they, you know, they're extracting wealth and extracting uh, money from communities. What we're trying to, to build um, with, with new banking models is ways of providing basic, boring banking services to small businesses and residents uh, in a way that just recirculates those profits, keeps the investment local and builds the economy that way. What is a co-op? I mean, we know the, the word and we've got an idea of it, but how, how does it work logistically setting up a co-op and uh, operating and what are the benefits for the, for the, not employees, but I guess the stakeholders, right? So a co-op is a business or an enterprise that instead of being privately held um, or owned and publicly traded on the stock market is held either by its workers or its consumers or some group of stakeholders. And this um, is is a model that dates back to Rochdale, to the foundational principles. There are other forms of milder, if you like, employee ownership that don't meet the strict co-op test. But it's got to be reasonably equitable to sort of qualify as a co-op. Yes. And... Do you see a big distinction in terms of the sort of social impact, the impact on workers and so on, between co-ops on the one hand and other forms like what they call social enterprises? So that's sort of businesses but founded for a social purpose or, you know, businesses that operate with a sort of big conscience, you know, give some of their profits away. Is there a bright line between them? It depends who you ask. But for me, I think what's exciting about the current moment is the plurality of ownership forms that are developing. In some circumstances, it makes perfect sense to have a very pure 
co-op of you know one member one vote ownership by the workers or the consumers or whatever in other circumstances it may make more sense to run something as a non-profit or to run it as a social enterprise where it has a mission baked into its bylaws and and governance um, but doesn't necessarily have to follow the you know the pure ownership models uh, in some circumstances it makes sense for things to be uh, run by the public and owned by the public and others uh, the community or or communal ownership the commons um, is is the more appropriate model and I think you know we're moving away from that old cold war binary of public private and seeing that actually there's a whole array of ownership forms uh, in between that can be experimented with and applied in different circumstances and I know this is an incredibly basic question for you but you cited some models of co-ops um, both here and in the US. What's the advantages of that? Well, I think as you've seen uh, the the economy concentrate into fewer and fewer hands in terms of the ownership of wealth, more and more um, income is flowing from capital ownership rather than from labor. Wages have been stagnant, uh, but returns to capital have been going up. You know this. Uh, Piketty's work has been very important in laying this out. And if you project this forward into the future, it looks very bleak. Wealth concentrating in fewer and fewer hands. What you're doing with a co-op or other forms of employee ownership is spreading the ownership of, of that wealth. This is something that's had appeal across the political spectrum for for a long time from John Stuart Mill even through to Ronald Reagan and even Margaret Thatcher talked about a property owning democracy it never happened um, but co-ops are one way of actually making it happen have spreading ownership of capital giving people ownership of their jobs rooting them in communities in place if you're a member of a co-op you tend not to uh, export your own job to uh, to China or or overseas um, you tend to uh, also be more concerned about uh, the environmental impacts of your practices and and your production uh, on the local community, which you're an owner of in, in the sense of the company, but also living in. And your children are drinking the water and breathing the air and so on. So it's a more embedded form of, of ownership in contrast with what we've got, which is a very disembedded form of ownership in terms of the publicly traded corporation. People own companies for milliseconds. There's so much churn that's going on. There's no real ability, therefore, to build stewardship of, of land, of thinking about carbon and so on over the long term. And you've got a project called the 50 by 50 project. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. So what 50 by 50 is, is an attempt to expand the employee ownership sector of the United States from where it is now, which is about 10 million um, worker owners mostly in employee stock ownership plans, a handful of worker co-ops. Uh, that's actually already more um, members than are in members of unions in the private sector in the United States. There's already a, a sizable employee ownership uh, sector compared to that declining union density. Um, but what we're trying to do is, is massively expand that. Um, we have set upon the idea that if there's a company um, in a sector of a certain size uh, that is cooperatively owned or owned by its employees, there's no reason why all the other comparable companies in that sector couldn't similarly be owned in that way. And so we projected out from the existing base and fa figured out that we could certainly have a, a much larger base of employee ownership, 50 million worker owners by uh, 2050. Personally, I'd have liked to have seen 25 by 25, but I'm, I'm always in a hurry. Uh, so I lost that one. That's good. That's good. And what are the obstacles to this? Because it sounds, I don't know what Jeff thinks, but it 
you know, when you listen to what you're saying, when you listen to what Ander was from it, it Mondo, sounds great. It but, sounds but how, sort of how do you go from it being where we are? Yeah, the, sort of, uh, the world of Amazon and you know Google and yeah, everything, which are certainly not co-ops, uh, to the world you want to build. I yeah, guess. sort of like aside from going and getting a job at John Lewis's. Like what's 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 the route for people listening who are thinking? I really like the idea of a, of an economy that bases more on this model. You know, how how do we get to there? So there's a couple of different paths that we can take forward. The thing that we've seized upon um, is what's being known increasingly as the silver tsunami. What the silver tsunami is is this wave of retiring baby boomer business owners who built their companies um, and are now at the point where they're retiring, um, they want to sell them on. Often their children aren't all that interested in, in running them. Um, many of them will just close down um, if they can't find a buyer. Others will be gobbled up by hedge funds and assets stripped and, and thrown away. And so the idea is um, to, tr to seize upon this sort of generational transfer of ownership um, to really try and, and convert as many of those uh, boomer businesses to employee ownership as is possible. So this will be the employees buying out the existing... Yes, exactly. Um, and, you know, the employees are going to need finance for that. And that's one of the areas that we're fo focusing on. It's not so easy for banks when they look at the employees rather than a hedge fund to assess credit worthiness and so on and so forth. And so there's some work needs to be done there. But, you know, employee-owned businesses, co-ops, are small businesses just like others and are eligible for many of the small business grants and loans and financial assistance and state and local policy support that, that's available. So how do we tap into that is one question we're looking uh, into. And that would extend to raising the capital to buy it in the first place. Exactly. I mean, we we in Evergreen created co-ops from the ground up, and believe me, it was incredibly hard. I didn't do the work. Colleagues did the work. But the opportunity to flip an already viable business and put that into the hands of its employees when it's already got markets, when it's already got relationships, etc., is very appealing. Um, and there'll be a much lower failure rate than, yeah. than trying startups. Because these are the people who've made the businesses a success in the first place. Mm -hmm. And presumably, if a government like the Jeffocracy bought your argument and wanted to to at least provide some incentive for the transformation of the economy they could with the tax system i mean this is a this is an area where if you gave tax advantages for example for people doing this or people selling on their businesses it's pretty re responsive to this so so with a government with the right will Correct. Um, and in fact, you know, this is where the legislation that created the possibility for ESOPs came from. It was a recognition. Just say what ESOPs are. Employee stock ownership plans. This is in the United States. Joe, this all sounds great, but what are the obstacles to doing this on a big scale in a capitalist economy? I think there are a number of obstacles, uh, finance being one of the immediate ones. Uh, it's not obvious um, what the credit worthiness of the owners is. Uh, it's not obvious that the company will be on a growth trajectory in quite the way that an ordinary capitalist uh, company would be, uh, and and so forth. Uh, Co-ops themselves also don't tend to expand um, in, in the way that ordinary companies do. They're not as growth-oriented. They're often happy to just keep taking over, which is a useful 
function maybe for a company because there isn't that profit incentive for the individual for the entrepreneur well, because you get to a certain point with certain returns and and certain working hours where you'd rather go home to your kids yeah. and family and and do other things rather than than make an extra pound um so some of it is is hardwired into the the form i think some of it is cultural um they're just not a natural fit they're an oddity um and seen as you know maybe fringe a little bit hippie or um a little bit um happy clappy um and not a real business um but i think people are starting to um to gravitate more and more towards them and be curious about them because the current system and the current businesses that we have are so obviously broken and not serving social and economic needs and so on that there's an openness to thinking about something different and turns out that you know there's something different um might have been around all along you know the uk invented co-ops and you know going back to rochdale um maybe a bit like football maybe co-ops will be coming home we've got this thing called the jeffocracy um which is jeff as a benign-ish dictator if he were to say to you okay you've got a year we're normally not that generous we can normally say 100 days but we've you've got a year you've got the run of the government to have this revolution to have the british 50 by 50 what would you do the first thing I'd do would be uh, dramatically uh, increase the technical assistance available for the other Matthew Browns, the other leaders of Labour councils that could start to move those local institutions. Or any, local council, or any, any party. councils. Yeah, any party. Um, and get them to, to really start procuring from local businesses, but in particular co-ops. And there's, you know, a lot of analysis needs to be done on where the gaps are. Um, where are there not small businesses that could then be created that could displace some of these big, you know, the Carillions and the Capitas and, yep. and all those. Yep. Um, then um, I would steal the um, the right to own uh, from John McDonnell. I think you could outflank him on this maybe and, uh, and take that policy and make it really, really strong to say what the right to own the is. right to own is the idea that if a company comes up for sale or is being closed down um, then the employees should have the right of first refusal to mm -hmm. purchase that company mm -hmm. so rather than the the hedge fund swooping mm -hmm. in and assets stripping it um, and you know one of the things that i would try and figure out in that first year is how to um, to expand this opportunity um, as far as possible, even beyond those companies that are either going to the wall or being handed over um, and sold so that you could start to tap into the, the rest of the companies in the economy as well, provide incentives for uh, maybe shares of companies to, to go to, to the employees. They don't have to own them all. There's different degrees of employee ownership that would be possible. There's a great example of this in the US not long ago, Chobani, the yogurt company, you may not have heard of it. I don't know if they have sales over here, but the it was closely held, um, privately owned, not publicly traded. And uh, when it was about to be put on the public markets, um, the owner allocated 10% of the company um, to the employees. So suddenly you'd been working in Chobani, you know, getting your probably decent wage, but suddenly you're an asset owner as well. Really interesting. You start then to create the political dynamics that would support the Jeffocracy into the future, a bit like what Thatcher did with, mm. uh, with council houses and so. Great, Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So what do you think? I'm more convinced than I was when I started. Don't get me wrong, I've always loved the idea of cooperatives, but you think of them as something a bit woolly and hippie-ish and oh, something that I lives agree. outside of the mainstream economy. I agree. But it's just so interesting to me that they're springing up 
Uh, like in, in laundry, food. Yeah. I think that's what's sort of very revelatory about yes, it. Yes, yeah. And it's not in a marginal part of the economy. I've probably used this phrase before, but Oscar Wilde said the problem with socialism is it takes too many evenings. And, you know, I, I suppose there's that worry about it, but it, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like, you know, well, this is a way that your workers can be paid a better wage. You know, the profits can be more fairly spread. You can be more productive. I mean, it, you know, I, I think it's pretty exciting. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Do share your thoughts on what you've heard, or if you have ideas for people we could talk to on future podcasts, you can email us. Reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can tweet us at cheerfulpodcast or find us on Facebook, facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful podcast. Have this from Tom Smith, who says, I just finished the episode on gender equality in the workplace in STEM. I am an assessor for apprentices in engineering, and I'm happy to say that we do try and encourage equality, and I'm happy to say that I do have a number of female apprentices. Sadly, it's not anywhere near the 50-50 split we would like, but we're slowly increasing the numbers of females into engineering and construction jobs. I was really pleased to hear you talk about pushing quality, not only for women in male heavy industries, but also pushing to get more men into female heavy industries. I'm often on training courses with assessors from other industries and was shocked to talk with one in the dental and hygiene sector who said that in the 20 years she's worked at the college, they've never had a male dental nurse apprentice. Wow. Um, I do feel a lot is being done, uh, but more could be done to push females into stereotypically male jobs. Um, emphasis uh, should be on removing any gender stereotype to a job and uh, not have pink and blue jobs, as Theresa May has mentioned, about putting bins out, just jobs that need doing. Next one is from Zach Keen about Silicon Valley surfs. Last week's episode, dear and Jeff, your topic was very interesting. You both talked about experiencing rejection and loneliness as teenagers, which anyone will say are perfectly normal feelings. That said, can you imagine if Dallas was frequently interrupted with statistics on your perceived popularity? No, I can't. Social media sites and apps are very engaging pieces of technology. It seems for vulnerable children there is no break. 
Of course, social media isn't all bad, but with the documented rise in mental health issues experienced by young people, we shouldn't bury our heads in the sand. Keep up the brilliant work. You brighten up my Monday. The next one is also on the same subject. It comes from Alistair Mitchell, or at Digitally Alley, from Edinburgh. He thinks we didn't have enough young people in our tech overload discussion, Jeff, and I don't think he includes you in young people. Right, because we category. did have me in there to make yeah. up the quota. But yeah, you As someone who recently point. left the Young Person Demographic 26, I have to say I found the latest episode on protecting kids from tech overload quite patronising. If you had a young person on to discuss with them, I think a better discussion could have been had. I feel a lot of the bad habits come down to parents. The technology-restricting settings which were discussed do exist in parental settings, but there isn't enough knowledge about them. Uh, he goes on to say that when he was growing up, he was surrounded by TV, video games, both console and portable, texting and in the later stages, YouTube, Facebook. But my parents didn't allow this during homework study periods and also beyond a certain time at night or during family time. He agrees with lots of the points around not harvesting data from children. And he'd be very interested to see if the design of these apps would change if there wasn't any monetary incentive to getting people under 18 to use them. He says the minimum age for Facebook, Snapchat and Instagram is currently 13. Perhaps this should be higher and enforced by government or the EU. And then he's got some tips for us as a millennial. Great. Learning etiquette and good practice with my phone is key to everyday life. Here are my top tips. Don't check your phone when someone else with, is with you. especially Sorry, I was dinner. checking my phone. I yeah. missed that one. It's the height of rudeness. Two, phone charges in another room from where I sleep. That's hard. Three, notifications are defaulted to off except for iMessage, so no Facebook or WhatsApp groups going off constantly. Mm -hmm. Uninstall social media apps. I've done this except for Twitter, but notifications are off. This has made the time I spent on the phone far more productive, and I also get terrific battery life too as a bonus. Really enjoy the podcast, and previous representation of young people has been greatly appreciated. Keep up the good work. Send us your ideas, or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook, or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. And here to pitch some ideas which could be potential reasons for cheerful. We're joined by Helen and Ellie from the Scummy Mummies podcast. Hello. 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 You did that much better the second time, by the way. Thank you very, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, the a, first one was a disaster. Yeah, it's terrible. It's, it's, Helen and Ellie is, is sort of difficult. Well, Ellie's oh, so real sorry. Name is Ellen. So we could have been Ellen, Ellen and Helen. Yes, that's that's obviously the television show. So uh, are you, are you, have you ever come across the Scummy Mummies podcast, Ed? I, I've heard of it. I've heard only good things about it. Great. Oh. Ellie hasn't listened to your podcast either, so yeah. you guys... <laughs> and thank you, Helen, for raising thank that you point. For, I think it's just good to sort of surface. Yes. This, yeah, yeah, think, this is yes. an honest space. Yeah, you know what I mean? So how, how long has it been going then? Ah, uh, five, five years. years. Yeah. And talk to me about when, when you go out and do live shows, which are like hugely popular. They are hugely popular. Thanks for saying they, that. They are. I mean, you've been doing them for a while, but I'm, I'm guessing the audience is there... Um, because that those early stages of parenthood, mm. you're so cut off from the world and you could be filling this time between sort of four and six in the morning or whatever. Yeah. yeah you must be heroes to these people. Yeah, we are. That's what we like to say. <laughs> We're heroes for the mothers. So we tour this, the Scummy Army show around the UK and we wear gold cat suits mm. and we now have new cat suits which are pink that's which what have we've a... been missing out on gold well, suits gold cat suits we yes. usually give our podcast guests cat suits but I just thought today is not the day it's but too hot it really. is too hot but when we yes. come on your live show uh, when you'll invite us on yeah. we'll bring them I yeah. thought wow. that on stage but yeah so we toured around the country and uh, it's amazing like there was women we did it in Brighton last night mm. and there were women who hadn't been out for ages and they had jugs of cocktails 
on the <laughs> we we <laughs> inspire people to drink. That's what we're saying. That's the kind of heroes. And what do you uh, talk are. about on the podcast? For so those the who podcast, haven't listened. yeah, because the podcast and the live show are quite different. So the podcast ostensibly it's about parenting, but of course, you know, it inevitably sort of devolves into all sorts of things. And we have guests on to talk about everything from wine to books to travel to their experiences of being um, a single parent or IVF or so sometimes parenty things. Yeah. But mainly it's filth and swearing, to yeah. be honest. Yeah. That's the main theme. Silly games, silly songs. Yeah. And uh, we ha- always end our podcast with Scummy Mummy Confessions. So everybody who's on our podcast has to give a story of parenting failure. And that's the one thing that links to the live show. Is the live show is like sketches and songs, more cat suits. Yeah. And then we Don't. have a live Scummy Mummy Confessions. And we've collected thousands of them from around the UK. So we've got this amazing shed for A map of, of scum. Yeah, like. it's like yeah. a snapshot of Mother Britain, yeah. really. And, of course, they're funnier than anything. Is it only mummies? Right. No, no, no. Sometimes we have at least four men in our audience of 500, <laughs> and they have a great time. Uh, we had one man. Yes, one man last night. Yes, yes. he was very pleased when I started talking to him oh, in the audience. Thrilled. He was absolutely thrilled with his life choices. Yes. Um, yeah. But that's, I mean, that's... They're not on the pool. We did a show in Tunbridge Wells, and there were um, some sort of men who got, I think from the local pub, who got wind that there were all these women clattering about out, incredibly drunk in white wine on high heels yeah. and sort of wandered over and tried to get in and <laughs> the doorman was like no mate it's not for you so you've brought along some ideas which could be uh, potential reasons to be cheerful yes, yes. We, we bought thousands actually so um, let's, let's rattle through let's, 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 let's see what you got fire. would you like to go first sure so the first one is we think um, maternity leave we think first of all the name of it should be changed because leave is like something you usually talk about when you're talking about a holiday or something yes. like this and in fact someone I used to work with when I um, was pregnant um, described my maternity leave as a biological holiday and I made that face you're making now yeah I mean, so, it's more like a prison sentence with hard labour. Well, yeah. well exactly. Uh, so we thought, what about calling it maternity service? Because you are yes. serving. Mm, yes. You're serving a child. Obviously, but actually, you're serving society. I'm on maternity you're raising service. A, yeah. And then I, and I think that will change perceptions. Because with men, paternity leave still, I think, is a, is a big, you know, big hurdle we have to get over. So if they're saying, oh, I'm, I'm doing my paternity service. That's good. Mm. It does sound a bit, um, what's the right word? Sort of like an obligation rather than a... It is, it is, it is, it is an <laughs> obligation. I mean, you can't just do a few days and go, oh, I don't fancy this much. No. Yeah, I suppose that's true. It's a life sentence. But that's the great thing about your podcast. You're talking about this stuff in, a, in an honest way. Instagram yeah. is full of feeds of people with their perfect babies and yes. how happy they are with their posh prams and yeah. things. But, yeah. you know, of course that is part of it, but it's just... Not all of it. No. no. Okay, well, we, we buy it, I think. Maternity okay. service, yeah, maternity definitely. service. Yes, and with that should come uh, free cough, because you get free bit vitamins because you're breastfeeding or, or whatever. Free dental, which is weird. Yes, but you should also get free coffee, uh, free biscuits and uh, a free pass to use a toilet anywhere without having to buy a muffin because uh, that's a big problem. I, I've bought a lot of gilt muffins when uh, the child needs the toilet and you're like, mm. oh, I'll just buy a muffin. And yeah, I think women should just go straight in, shouldn't they? Yeah. Really? Definitely. And Definitely. flexible working, I think, it should be mandatory. Oh, yeah. I like that we put that after the coffee and the biscuits. <laughs> yes. I and mean, the toilet. And the also, toilets. flexible working should yeah. be obligatory. Yeah. Uh, yes. Ding dong. And if your work won't give you flexible working, you should be allowed to bring the baby to work with you and uh, see how that goes for See how long it takes yeah. Yeah. No, 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 fine. You work from home. Yeah. You take that screaming. Great. I, I think, think we buy the whole policy. We're having Great. it. Great. Maternity service done. What should we do next, Ellie? Right, this is my one. She's, um, getting, she's got angry voice. You've gone, you've gone your angry oh. peckham voice. Uh, are, we, are we allowed to swear? Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Let's go. <laughs> do you want to know what Ed's favourite swear word is? Oh. What's my favourite swear word? I don't know. I gave you a... <laughs> <laughs> I do now. Oh, I, I thought you were going to say crumbs. 
<laughs> that is one of Ed's favorite. That's I a, like that's, that one. Know, um, I, is as it extreme as it gets? Burke. Burke, that's a good one, yeah, actually. Yeah, it's I not used, used enough Burke. these days, no. It's yeah, falling out of favour. I did use Wazzock the other day. Oh, weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, who are yeah. we talking about? Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> good stuff. So this policy is uh, dog shit ID microchipping. Right. Because it drives me. I live in South East London and there is uh, I live on the school run. There's a lot of um, dog, dog shit on the way to school and it drives me and all the other parents and I'm sure all the other people absolutely bonkers. So I, I haven't exactly worked the science out, but someone's going to be able to. I'm not a science person. Mm. No. Someone has to do it. You should um, be able to put a microchip in the dog food so that when the dog shits, the shit is Tiny. traceable. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I agree dog shit is a problem, but it's quite a lot of business. I mean, can you attach a stencil to their arsehole so that? They sort of shit QR, <laughs> shit QR codes, yeah. QR codes, yes. no, no, and then no, you just hold your phone over the shit, yes. and then and then that contracts the owner. Yeah. yeah. And what was the punishment? We thought that the... oh, the punishment. So when you caught the the owner of the dog, um, who's let the dog crap on the pavement, mm-hmm. um, the punishment because obviously fines don't work. Yeah. Um, the punishment should be they have to go to a soft play centre after a bank holiday, a rainy bank holiday weekend, and clean out the nappy bins. Oh, that's a good. That is an apt punishment, yeah. and Excellent someone's got to punishment. do it. It's like community service. It's got to be done. Why should the people... It's supposed to maternity it... service. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting on board here, like it. Uh, I like it. That definitely is a punishment that fits the crime, I think. Yeah. 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 Definitely. I can tell from your, your face, which... No, I sort of agree. Be described I'm, as a grimace. I'm, sort of, I'm not... sort of half... I'm kind of halfway there. I'm halfway there. I which don't... half aren't you on board with? The stencil-shaped anuses? <laughs> I sort of agree about the problem. I'm not sure government has the bandwidth. Well, with Brexit and everything, for the old yeah, they're, microchipping they're of the, yeah, of the poo. You think outside the box. Then. You do, yeah. <laughs> what do you got next? The next thing is relationship MOTs, and that anybody in a relationship has to renew it every year, and that you have to get everything checked so it's in balance. Okay, well, Jeff, you know what that means? We're coming up for our year. We are. <laughs> exactly, because yeah. you're part wives like we, me and Ellie. We need to have a... We need to have an MOT. What what what's part? What happens well, in the MOT? Well, you know, like reassessing is there equal chores? Yeah. Who's putting the bins out? Are they going in the right direction? All your working parts? How often you're having sex? All that sort of stuff. Yes. What, when did cooking? you two last do it? I mean, mm, not not often enough. Yeah, really. no. I just can't remember. How bad things are. Yeah. yeah, you need to go on a holiday together and you know reconnect. I've yeah. suggested it. <laughs> <laughs> See, stuff like this. This is what it's about. This is what it's about. Get a little MOT and then you can carry on for another year. Or you have to get divorced. It's up to you. Yeah, it's like yeah. an anniversary. You start being better. Mm. So if you knew that every year you had to get it checked, there would be less complacency, I think. Mm. Well, know. there's also less sense of crisis because yeah. you, you're due for your MOT anyway. So it's not like it goes years and years with it yeah. all being bottled up. Yeah. yeah. Not that I'm... I'm not talking I mean, only about me and Jeff here. Ah, <laughs> uh, and then it all sort of, and then it all comes out <laughs> yeah, at the wrong yeah. moment. Yeah, exactly. I think this is gonna this is gonna be better for society. What do you reckon? Done. Good. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm into this. Yeah. Right. Oh, good. Can you find you. someone for me and Jeff, please? Yeah, we'll do that. Uh, and now, should we go on to badges? Yes. Uh, so, oh, uh, be careful. Be very careful here. Why? Badges are a sore point with Ed. Oh, why? What, like. He, he has a paranoia Do I look like a badger? that he looks like a badger. No, not no. badger. Badgers. badgers. She's from Australia. Oh, badgers. <laughs> badgers. Badgers. You. Badgers. You. Badgers. 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 Like, like it's like a wear. trigger word for him. You win Badgers. Badgers. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeff was sensitive to my trigger. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh. So, so, you know, pins. 
So badges then. Bad- so specifically, mm. so you know like Transport for London. Lapel pins. Gives yes. out these. They give out baby on board they do, yes. badges. Yeah. Um, which, are, you know, they give you when you're pregnant. Yeah. And the idea is that I think they're good, you wear actually. them. Yeah, mm. people give you a seat yeah. on the tube. Or they're supposed yeah. to. And they usually do unless they're wankers. Yeah. So that's great. Yeah. Um, but we should have badges for other reasons that people need a seat on the tube. The so, badges. Badges. So along with baby on board, you should have a badge that says, uh, you know, I need a seat. It's my birthday. Or bad period. Or bad hangover. Yes. Or just ill-fitting shoes. Mm. Or um, I'm feeling windy. It's best for everyone if I sit down. <laughs> Things like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or I need a badge because I often get offered a seat mm. and uh, I'm not wearing a badge and I'm not even pregnant. So oh, I no. I just take it because yeah. I'm not an idiot. Uh, but I just need one that says just fat. Yeah. 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 <laughs> or what about instead of baby on board, cheese on board. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. Avoid those awkward conversations. You yeah. can sort of you can sort of pick them at the tube station. Yeah, maybe they're single use somehow. You only get because you can't have a hangover every day. Well, yeah. it depends. Yeah, uh, I mean maybe five six times a year for yeah. a hangover. That's enough. Yeah. Birthdays, you know, Christmas dues, etc. And that's your limit. Yeah, you could sort of experiment with them. Real time experiment. I you could produce could, the badges yeah. and then people could see whether it, the badges and see whether it, and see whether it. <laughs> And yeah. see whether don't produce badges on no, the tube. No, no, it's a nightmare. People, I've been there. wearing badges on the nightmare. tube. Oh, that is going to be traumatic. Yeah. Bulk on board. <laughs> and I wasn't talking about you. I was just saying in general. <laughs> We're putting that on our poster. Uh, uh, but bulk on board. There must be some other ones which are like baby on board. It's got to feel like it's sort of, a, you know. Mm. You, Badger on board. Badger on board. <laughs> just leave it. Yeah. And you got one last one for us. Yes, we've got one last one, uh, which is um, companies who donate to political parties should have to put that on their packaging. So if you're buying a packet of crumpets, it should say Tory crumpets. So that if you don't want to eat Tory crumpets, yes, that's right. you don't have to. You can just buy a different brand. We all know which brand we're talking about. We do. Or, you know, clothes and things mm. like that. You don't want to buy Tory clothes. Some yes. of our listeners might. But equally, yes. it works the other way. If you yes. do want to buy a Tory crumpet, yeah. Um, then you can go ahead and do that. You can make that choice actively. Yeah, there are so many things are political acts these days. Now I'm worrying about eating crumpets. Mm. I think welcome. it's good. I, I, like, I like the idea actually, but it's like a health warning. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Let's you want to know where you where your money's going? Don't yeah. You? Exactly. So transparency. We're into transparency, aren't we? I think so. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, we'll have that too. Great. Um, so the podcast uh, is out every week. Every two weeks. Every two, two weeks. Gummy yeah. mummies. Yeah. And we're touring up and down the country with our show and our cat suits. Yeah, it's all on scummymummies.com, all the tickets, all the jazz. Yeah. And we have a book which is still in print. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> you said that like you expected it to go out of print oh, very quickly. Oh, every day. Every day. We just check Amazon. <laughs> no, it's still there. Yeah. 30,000 in the charts. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's it. Great. Ellie, Helen, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So here we are in the outro. Yes. And we're both going to be on another station next week. Although separately. Separately. So in a strange turn of events. Twist of fate. Ed Ed and I are both going to be on Radio 2 next week. You've got me with a two-decade-plus career in radio behind me. And I will be mumbling around midnight in the midnight slot. And then you've got Edu, because he's got a bit of public profile, <laughs> just wanders straight into a daytime slot. So I'm going to be presenting Jeremy Vine uh, for three days uh, next week, which I'm obviously very flattered to be doing. But I'll, I'll definitely be listening to you. 
Maybe I'll well. make a trail and you can play it during your program. Yeah, that's true. So if I, can get I know some... you don't have that much to say, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, you're tightly, you're tightly managed. Being the little own part is nothing compared to the tight management and necessary management on the Jeremy Vine program. So we should thank our guests. Yes, I'd like to thank Joe Guinan and Anda Echeverria. And uh, very impressive pronunciation, by the way. I took a run at it. Yeah, I know, but you would never have known. I mean, it was really very competent. Um, And uh, I'll thank Ellie and Helen from the Scummy Mummies podcast. Emma Corsham produces our podcast brilliantly every week with backup and research from Alex Weissbryce and Lindsay Todd. Uh, Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our eye dance. Uh, Ed Seed did our music. Of course he and did. Emily Power did our artwork. I bumped into Emily Power in the street the other day and I told her how much you enjoy saying her name every week. Emily Power. Power to the Emily needs. Power. Power to the artwork. Power to the artwork. He's been Jeff. He's been Ed. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.